John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 022.jb3132, certificate number 36809, an African in Greenland. I know, I know. It's serious. <laughs> that, doesn't even, that doesn't even scan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's become a, a, like a, a tick for me to Morrissey everything. I do that with... Anything that has the rhythm of werewolves of London. Oh. Like if you there's, go, oh. Yeah, if there's a sign that says like veggie samosas, I'll be like veggie samosas. <laughs> uh, and there's a few others, including some that are just so short that I don't even know why. Like I think there's a two syllable one I do, and I, I don't even know what that would mean. Yeah. Um, it's a trigger. I don't have any of those with you, though. What do you mean? Well, I don't. When I think when I think Ken Jennings, it doesn't. Oh, with my not, name? Yeah, it doesn't have a song that goes with it. Ken Jennings. It's not really that rhythmic. I do say da, it's da, da, America's da, 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 sweetheart, Ken Jennings. Whenever da, da, you walk da, da, into da, da, da. a room, I mean, it's a little bit Dr. Seussie, Ken Jennings. Yeah, as Dr. Seuss famously said. Yeah, his famous his famous book. Have you heard of my bubba? Do you? Um, I know you've. You're a world traveler. Do you ever read travel literature? Like I think travel I travel writers. I went through a phase, yeah, but you know, I suffer from I suffer from the the green uh, demoness of envy. There's a green demoness. A green demoness. She comes to you by night. I know, I know. <laughs> like like the ghost <laughs> coming to Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, she's the uh, you know envy the the uh, the Greek goddess, the famous green eyed monster who who. who Leans heavily on me whenever I read travelogues, because I feel like there was a there was a future for me as a travel writer, and um, and when I read people that have find, somehow made made that their their vocation, I always feel a little bit like, well, <laughs> I could have done that. Yeah, like how hard is that? They probably got free hotel and meals. Yeah. And also, like, why am I reading about this? Why don't I just go do it? That's the thing. I, yeah. I guess I saw you reading. Weren't you reading Patrick Lee Firmer not too long ago? Well, so I I read those books a long time ago, and I found them so like overwrought, and I I found him as a teenager at least or a young man insufferable. They did not make you want to no no, no go they, to the Greek Isles or whatever. They they made me just rage. And then when I realized his later story, I mean, when I read them the first time, I had no idea of the arc of his life. 
And when I understood the arc of his life, I had a new interest in, in, um, just knowing more about him. Like by the, by the time he was in late middle age, he seems like maybe the most fascinating man in the world. And I, I wish I could have sat at his feet, but you went from contempt to the, the green eyed demoness, we call it yeah. as we all say, but partly it is that when I travel, I'm, it's always under a little bit of a, of a kind of cloud of, um, of an expectation that if you're not if you're not struggling, then you're not having an actual it's, authentic experience. There's no narrative if you're just um traipsing. Boy, I, I went to that restaurant that was supposed to be good and it was sheer good. Yeah. Then I went to the temple and it was really picturesque. It was really nice. And so many travelogues seem to be this kind of like, it was amazing. Oh, I met these wonderful people and it was so great. And I just had this amazing, and you're, so they're recounting adventures, but there's no tension. There's no struggle. You need to be more like Paul Thoreau and take your kids to the coast of Nicaragua and then they all get eaten by pythons or and, whatever And it, Paul Thoreau, are, I like those books, or I mean, I like the ones I read. There weren't, I didn't read them all, but, but I always felt like, and that was my, you know, that was my, in a different way, my kind of critique of Eat, Pray, Love was just that it all worked out. Like, I don't want it to all work out, right? You've got to, it's got to, you've got to come away with real scars somehow. You think eat, pray, love should end with a crocodile attack? Yeah. I that, like that, that would be the eating. Eat, pray, love, die. That's the I mean, book I want. All books really do end with die. That, that is the end of all human adventure. Yeah. So do you think all books should change their titles to just have die at the end? I feel like yeah, two old, cities and then death. The old man in the sea, die. Pride and prejudice and death. I do feel like um, maybe my my works will only be published after I die. And so, you know, die will be implied. It'll be in the past tense. Yeah. Dead. And, and then I died. Died. John Roderick, comma, died. dead. In, a, in some kind of silo. Uh, but, but I, but I err on the wrong side of that. Right. And when I, when I travel and write, I like seek discomfort a lot of the time as a kind of, and I think when I was young, I imagined it was a shortcut to enlightenment or a shortcut to, uh, truth. It's a shortcut to better books. There's, it's a shortcut to better there's books. There's more conflict and, and a veneer of authenticity. But you but you also often find yourself, or I found myself, like sleeping under a fountain next to a hotel where they had a big sign in the window that said, free rooms. Free beds for John Roderick. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sleeping in the I'm sleeping in the gutter. And it just it started to feel dumb after about age twenty-four. I don't read a lot of um travel books. Because I, yeah, I guess I don't understand the appeal. I mean, really, it's just you're enjoying a memoir. I think like the, the the travel books I've read that I liked are, you know, it's you're getting to know the person. It's not really about what the what the Nicaraguan coast is like. But we were talking about this earlier today the the fact that a all writing is memoir, it's true. and that that ergo all writing is boring. I don't know if I believe that second part. <laughs> it depends on the person. I mean, it, depends, it really is like you're meeting a person. And yeah, maybe right. they're insufferable and therefore not boring. Or maybe they're delightful and therefore not boring. I guess sometimes they're just boring. Well, uh, Eat, I, pray, love. Yeah, d- no, I would never say that. She's she, a fascinating woman. She's a great novelist. Well, and she's a wonderful Which I did not person, expect. A conversationalist. Like, she's a very, very... Have you guys met? 
Yeah, several times. And in fact, did, one, did you eat and pray but not love? No, one time I made the mistake of. I thought you were going to say one time I made beautiful love. To one her. time we made beautiful love. No, one time I made the mistake of of uh, talking to her about my feelings about eat, pray, love. Wait, why and, would you do that? I, 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 hey, what's up? Don't like your book. You know, I was. We were. You know, we're kind of casual friends, acquaintances at least. And um, I had a theory. I'd been working on a theory, right? So I had a theory. It wasn't just, I don't like your book. It was, I was Here's why. I was putting her book in the context of a larger theory I had. And boy, she put me in my place. Really, really, really firmly in my place. And it was a, it was a joy to behold. Well, authors have the, the mistaken idea that they're the authorities on what they've written. They're, they're the mm-hmm. last to know. But she's she's very smart and also like very good with, words and very confident. So I was like, here's my theory. And she was like, sit in your chair. And I went, yes, ma'am. I only knew her from the, you know, I guess I first became aware of her work through the movie adaptation of her, of, of her kind of soppy memoir. Was and that a good movie? I, I don't know. Oh, I didn't see it. No, I didn't. It's just how I became aware of it. So I was very surprised when she like started writing these extremely well-researched historical literary novels. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Well, she's like smart. Uh, I assumed so, yeah, but, um, but like super smart, despite her, despite whatever dumb things she did in <laughs> Bali. <laughs> it's just any book that has the word love in it, unless it's love in the time of cholera, unless there's cholera in the book. Don't talk to me about, is love. there cholera and eat, pray, love? I don't think so. Is this true of your relationships in real life? You don't actually want love unless there's also cholera. Don't say that you love me unless you've given me cholera. So you have to have cholera first. Yes. And then- well, you can say you love me. As you reveal to me the diagnosis of cholera, why do I feel so bad? So you're single because not enough you. people have given you. I mean, it really whittles down your dating pool. Cholera is less common in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> and maybe than I it should, once was. <laughs> maybe I should travel to more tropical climes. Uh, maybe you could switch to um, what's the Oregon Trail disease? Dysentery. Switch dysentery, to dysentery. Yeah. Maybe if my, uh, uh, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me <laughs> dysentery. Dysentery. Uh, the, uh, there's kind well, of this, what are the most recent travel books you've read? I don't know. I can't even think. Of oh, you, it's not a thing that you do. Not recently. I'm trying, what if I read that is like a travel book? Um, the Bible. <laughs> they're always walking around in the Bible. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a great tra- travel book. Um, there's the kind of an, un- speaking of, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Stroud. There's kind of an unquestioned thing about travel literature. Um, that I had never thought of until recently, which is that the travel is always between, either between the, you know, the developed world, you know, our modern West, the U.S. and Europe, and, you know, other kinds of more exotic, off-the-beaten-path locations. I got that wrong. It's not Elizabeth Stroud. No, it's Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert. There we go. Uh, so, you know, in her case, what, leaving her wealthy middle-class milieu, wherever she was, New England, who knows, Mm -hmm. and, uh, winding up in Italy, India, and Indonesia. The three eyes, we call them. The three eyes, where the food is good and the the men are dark and handsome. The eaty eye, the prey eye, and the lovey eye. (laughs) You, uh, you start off in India for, um... For pasta. Sorry. Right. And you start in Italy for Italy pasta. for pasta. That, there we go. It's Famous Indian pasta. Then you make it to India in time to pray mm-hmm. before bed. And then you follow the sun. Oh, no, wait. The sun's going the You're other going way. going the other way. You get away from the sun. You, you, you head to Indonesia for the sunrise. 
And uh, that's where you find the love. That's where you make love on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great trip. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, these things are all seen through the eyes of, you know, comfortable, in her case, fairly wealthy people, I think, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. from our own cultural. And so movement. many of the great travelogues are, right? I mean, the, the Grand Tour, sure. all the great um, European writers who went back to steal marbles from uh, from like Greek villages. And occasionally we have the account of uh, someone from one of these more off the beaten path locations coming to our world. And that's a different kind of memoir. I mean, usually I, it, well, actually it's Borat. Usually it's, cro- <laughs> it's Crocodile Dundee or Borat. It's someone who doesn't know how to use a, an escalator. But there are older versions of that. Um, like a, um, what, like Pocahontas? Yeah. Pocahontas. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Yeah. No, right. Pocahontas so, invented the genre. She didn't get to write about it because she died of cholera or whatever shortly thereafter. Dysentery. Uh, but there were examples of people. I mean, we, we've talked about them on the show. The um, the the sort of Japanese shipwreck uh, that right. like survivors that ended up in the United Kingdom and and we like those for their novelty and sometimes the outsider perspective they provide us on our uh, on our weird culture. Right. Um, you know, because they're seeing it through their fresh eyes. But one thing we rarely have is kind of the peer-to-peer travelogue of somebody from a place that's not us going to a different place that's, that's not, not us. us. And that's a that would be most travel, honestly. And there's got to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of, of similar accounts. Of I mean, stories. Anytime, anytime someone goes to the Hajj, coming from somewhere non- uh, Western and going to somewhere non-Western. Sure, the old NW to NW vacation. But we wouldn't, you and I typically wouldn't read a Sudanese account of their trip to Saudi Arabia because it, do, it didn't, you know, make it into the syllabus of uh, of the literature courses at BYU. If there are other books like this, I don't know if I can think of one, but um, an African in Greenland, the subject of today's uh, story is kind of the what the ne plus ultra nice. the, it's well the done. it's the it's the as far as you can go with this kind of idea someone from uh a, you know a new and a new and strange part of the world to the reader goes right. to a new and strange part of the world to them and the reader right uh and there's some interesting things that can be done with that because um you know they have the ability to compare two things that are unfamiliar to you and you know, that's not something you could have done if you're, if you, you know, if it's either to or from your own part of the world. You know, you kind of get double the, what, double the local color and exotic flavor in one of these hypothetical peer-to-peer memoirs. How many books do you think are written from the perspective of a Chinese traveler in India or an Indian traveler in China? I wonder if... Uh, they exist, but they're just not translated into the into English. I mean, they they almost have to be just just like statistically, of all the writers of in all the, the world, of all the people in the world, <laughs> and um, it's obviously skewed by the fact that we travel more than people from Togo or Greenland, right? Um, travel in it in that way, right? In the kind of like I'm going to write a little memoir about this. Right. That's kind of the post colonial way we do. But if you think about all the, for instance, like the Chinese railroad engineers, or not like not choo choo engineers, but like railroad builders yeah. who are currently in Ethiopia and or Sudan. Mozambique, yeah, exactly. And the culture clash that must be happening there, or not clash, but just like encounter, right? Because I think 
everybody in Africa is used to Europeans tromping around in jodhpurs. But now there's this very helpful group of of uh, Chinese, Chinese helpers, technocrats, <laughs> yeah, who are here with a lot of money and a lot of help, a lot of industrial help. Um, Asterix, and yeah, what I mean, that's got to be a, a phenomenal. One of them at least has written a book about it. These stories um, maybe don't get told or don't get translated. Don't um, get translated. But in um, in 1981, Tete Michel Pomasi. A, a Togolese man um, published his story of his youthful adventures in the Arctic. Uh, it's his name is pronounced. His name has a silent K. It's it starts with a KP. Like and that's not and you don't pronounce like it. It's not I Kamasi. Kamasi. Like so many great Beetle Bailey comics, it begins with KP. Uh, but I don't think you say the K. I think it's just Pomasi. Tete Michel Pomasi. And it's the first time I've ever had my attention drawn to, you know, a travel book of this kind, where both places are new and strange. And uh, his story is fascinating um, because he has a perspective on, I mean, first of all, he's writing it later in life, so he has a perspective on his own West African childhood that um, he wouldn't have otherwise if he hadn't been to the Great White North. Right. And he definitely has an unusual take on Greenland. And those places are both so strange that anybody's take on Togo or Greenland would be worth a read. Um, so it's the elevator pitch for this book is fantastic. I, I think you would say the elevator pitch for this book is An African in Greenland. Uh-huh. It, it, it writes itself. There it is. That's the title. I, I think we have a tendency in the United States, and maybe this is true a lot of places, to conflate Greenland and Iceland. And Iceland seems, at least from a European perspective, kind of knowable because it just seems like Denmark, if you took Denmark and isolated it from everybody for, moved it. for 400 years. But Greenland is nothing like Iceland. Iceland has a cultural footprint, too. You know, you might know about Bjork. Yeah. Or... Uh, That's it. Pretty much Bjork. Yeah, Bjork. No, they've got a great history of, of poetry and culture. Yeah, they, they have gnomes, they make sweaters. Right. Greenland doesn't even have people, for the most part. For the most part. It is, it is very sparsely populated, and it has, an ex, it has, a, it's a, has a dominant, um, like, uh, Inupiat culture. Yes. In his book, he calls them, uh, he calls the natives of Greenland Eskimos, just because that's, that was kind of the common ethnological the the word at the time. Yeah. Um, so don't be offended if, if I were to, if I were to do that, but, um, the, let's see, Greenland is bigger than Alaska. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's the size, it's roughly the size of Alaska and, you know, Texas or California put together. It's covered under so much ice that we don't even know if it's an island or an archipelago. It's the world's largest island asterisk. Now I should say that that when I said Inupiat, the the Inupiats are the Alaskan Inuits, and the people of Greenland are there other in, Inuits in the family of Inuit, and but I don't think I don't think they would call themselves Inupiat. That is a that's an, the Alaska side. Yeah, I think the indigenous people of Greenland spread west from Alaska through Canada and there. So it is, it is kind of all one culture and many of the myths are, uh, are similar. You know, if you, if, if you're talking to a native of Baffin Island versus Greenland versus somewhere in Alaska. Yeah. Um, but the culture, you know, has varied over the thousands of years they've been there. Um, Pomasi is from Togo in West Africa, a small country on the 
whatever that is, the the bite of Benin, the, the Bay of the Biscay, Bay of Biafra, the uh, Equatorial Guinean Sound sluice. What is it called? The Gulf of Guinea. There it is. Uh, I was close. Togo's tiny. It's um, about the size of Vermont and New Hampshire put together. Uh, Which you would never do in this country. Oh, they're already together. I mean, the Connecticut River divides them. Is that what you mean? You would never get rid of the Connecticut River and let them intermingle? No, I don't think they have anything in common. We we always put them together. We assume that Vermonters and New Hampshireans New Hampshireites are uh, are like peas in a pod, but they're not. They're not. No, New Hampshireites live free or die. Right. Vermonters just, agree. Just Disag- die. Uh, Vermonters disagree. <laughs> yeah. All all state mottos and books should end with die. Um. Pomasi grew up in Togo when it was still French, part of French Togoland. It, was, it didn't have its independence until, I think, around 1960. So when the book begins in the 50s, he's a young boy um, living in uh, a family milieu that to us seems uh, a little bit uh, unusual. His uh, dad has a series of, uh, of uh, subordinate wives, of which he is one of the children, um, and therefore pretty low on the... Totem pole, although on a real totem pole, of course, the most important image is lower. But in the hierarchy of that culture, uh, the youngest kid, I mean, the kids are, the kids get nothing and the youngest kid gets less than nothing. Yeah. Gets pissed on by the older kids. Especially the youngest kid of a lesser wife. Right. And that should be the name of my autobiography, except I wouldn't slur my mother. Younger kid of a lesser wife. Yeah. Uh, He is, uh, his dad appears to be pretty well off. He has some kind of good job as a foreman for some electricians union outside of the capital of Lome. But um, they seem to be on the outskirts of the city because the kids spend their days earning extra money by um, shimmying up a, a, a palm tree after, I think after making nice with the groundskeeper and uh, you know, they have to leave the fruit alone, but they can bring down branches and fibers and husks and whatnot that can then be woven into mats. Whenever uh, next my daughter complains about her chores, exactly, I'm going to say, you know, you're lucky. You're lucky you're the main daughter of the main wife. They're, they're, uh, they're <laughs> like the palm tree is smooth at the bottom. So you have to like just clutch on for dear life like you're climbing a greased fire pole. And then at the, at, when you get about halfway up, it gets rough, which is even worse because then you scrape up your, your front. You've right. probably taken off your loincloth because otherwise it would get caught on stuff. So you're just shimmying up a palm tree naked like young Michelle. And the book, um, oh, you know, there's a, just the little details he has about what it's like to be the youngest child in this culture is very funny. You know, he really seems fixated on the fact that as the youngest child, his siblings treat him terribly. And um, uh, hierarchy is so important there that even twins, we've talked about the twins of West Africa, or even twins in Togo have a pecking order. But interestingly, it's the youngest twin who is the senior one. Oh, uh, the last to arrive must be the best. Well, that's not the general rule for kids. But in twins, it goes something like this. Clearly, that was the senior twin who went to the other twin and said, hey, you go out there first and see if it's safe. Uh, and I'll come along in a minute if it is. Smart. And so in the case of a stillborn twin, that's a, that's a case of, you know, uh, it wasn't safe out there. Whereas if both twins arrived safely, clearly the, the smart one said, you go first. Uh-huh. So the younger twin is the older twin. 
Unlike in our culture, uh-huh. where the younger twin is the younger twin. Just one of many fascinating differences between us and the Togo <laughs> Lees, John. <laughs> it's so fascinating. And I'm now I'm really chewing on it for, uh, I'm gonna, and that's going to be something I think about a lot. Which twin, the first or the last to arrive, is really the, the, the senior one? I love the idea that there's enough room in there for one twin to be like, after you. No, no, after you. No, no, after you. <laughs> it's, it's more of a spy versus spy situation. That's like, right. Yeah. Uh, one day, Michelle and his brothers are climbing up palm trees, and he gets to the top of a particularly promising-looking one, takes a break, opens up a opens up a coconut and drinks the milk, and then he looks down and finds that under some of the fronds of this coconut tree, which he was about to there's a gnome. harvest, there's an enchanted Greenlandic <laughs> gnome. No, although it is a fairy tale beginning, there is a great snake. <gasps> A serpent over a just a huge cluster of eggs, some of which have already hatched, and, are, and so there's now baby snakelets um, writhing around over this angry mama snake. I don't know what to. I don't know whether to be thrilled or horrified. And he's at the top of a what, like a thirty foot tree. Yeah. What are you so going to do? What do you do? Um, I think he's left his loincloth and stuff down below. Right. So he just freezes. He has not brought his machete, or no, I think even if he had his machete, um, they're told not to machete a snake. Because then you just get two flailing snake parts, one of which has teeth. Wow. So you do not want to machete a snake. Just a, a tip for the future. Okay. All right. Writing that down. Um, so instead, he starts to shimmy down as fast as he can, but the snake protecting its nest comes after him. And so he gets about uh, you know, 20 feet from the ground, thinks he can survive, and just drops and uh learns to fly learns he can fly he could fly the whole time uh no like oh. knocks himself out gets concussed oh. his family hears the yell and by the time they get there the snake has come down and is like on him and you know so he he you know he wakes up about a week later very you know weakened in his hut and uh you know the family is like well I, we don't can't believe you survived we can't find the bite marks and he's like oh i don't think i was ever bit you know they thought he had just passed out and therefore the venom had not spread throughout his body uh, it turns out he was never bit. Just the snake scared the hell out of him. But his, um, you know, he's still kind of wavering between life and death. So his parents, to continue the fairy tale metaphor, his parents, or his father, uh, carries him into the sacred forest. Oh, the sacred forest. Part, you know, a, a nearby, um, you know, part of what was once a great rainforest covering this part of Togo, right? Which was then um, slashed you know, and burned, slashed and burned out of existence during the during the French colonial era. So, but for whatever reason, this little cluster of of uh, a forest is left, and as a result, it's full of exotic fauna, and it's super uh, religiously important to the people. Right. And there, um, you know, he's taken into a, you know they, they're met by the uh, a Ent, witch by the ants a witch oh a witch. a witch even better who takes her into his hut and uh, says she's going to do a you know a healing. It's because he um you know she wants to know if he's ever. Uh, insulted or injured any snake and he has hmm. a pretty good snake record what's your record on that i don't think i've ever injured a snake have you insulted one like not within their hearing i don't think hmm. I don't, do you know how well a snake can hear they don't have ears they can hear the vibrations of me being like what the and they're like he just said that i suck i put a rooster in a snake cage one time and it was the rooster had gotten too big and the snake wouldn't eat it and it was kind of an insult. Were you trying to feed the snake? It was one of these situations where a friend had a snake. You see some weird guy that goes to elementary schools with a snake around him? He actually he actually drove an El Camino. And uh, and we got a rooster to feed the snake. 
a, like a like a boy, like a young rooster. A boy. A boy. A young boy. <laughs> That's the technical term for a young rooster. Young boy or, rooster. Or boy. And uh, he had gotten too big, and the snake wouldn't eat him. And it was hilarious to see this giant snake and a pretty large rooster in a cage, kind of looking at each other, not sure what to do. I feel like we're going to hear from our tender-hearted animal rights yeah. listeners who do not think this is hilarious, John. Well, well, what ended up happening was we took the rooster, we put the rooster in the back of the El Camino, and we drove across town. And that was hilarious because there wasn't room for me in the cab of the El Camino, so it was just me and the rooster in the back. And the rooster wasn't in a cage. So we, and you know, in El Camino, you're just sliding around back there. Were you hoping to trade it in for two smaller roosters? Well, no, because we had, we had the rooster. What do you do with it? I was going to take it home. So we took the rooster to where I was staying, but I didn't actually live there. I was just crashing on the couch. And the guy that owned the house was like, you can't bring that rooster in here. I believe that was foreseeable. And so I'm in the living room negotiating the fate of the rooster who's out on the porch. And I, at that point in time, the rooster and I had developed a relationship and I, and I really felt like the rooster would wait. But when I came out of the house to explain to the rooster that we had been rejected and he and I were going to have to go on a grand adventure, the rooster was gone. And I searched the whole neighborhood. You know, and at that point, the rooster was two feet was tall or whatever. And I don't know. I don't was know. Was El Camino at the top down or something? Where did, it, where did he? Or did he, you had let him loose in the yard? Well, or? no, I brought the El Camino left. I, oh, I brought this. the rooster onto the porch. And he just wandered off. And he wandered off. And this was in Seattle's International District, or what we would call now, I think, Little Somalia. The neighborhood's changed quite a bit. Um, and the rooster, you know, and I, I believe firmly that the rooster went on to live a, a, a long life. You don't think um, it was eaten with injera that night? <laughs> just, just, just living, living. He's probably four feet tall now. And Cock just, of the walk. Yep. He's 25 years old. No, I think that someone came along and said, look at this. Because the rooster got out. Hey, look, free rooster. And the rooster was like wandering the streets with a with a little suitcase in one hand and and uh, its dreams of Hollywood um, in a hat box. It's a rooster that sings like Frank Sinatra, like uh-huh. in some old Looney Tunes. <laughs> and uh, and somebody came along and said, "You know what? You know what? You're too big for a snake to eat, but not too big for me." And that thus endeth the story. It's a little uh, Aesop's fable. Yeah, the snake, the rooster. And the, and the Indian hung, hungry Asian man. <laughs> oh, and that guy too. Yeah, wait, wait. Yeah. Unseen. I guess yeah. he's he's not seen in the story. Uh, I guess all my snake encounters are, I have a very visceral reaction to snakes, which is like, whoa, why is that there? I want to stand in a different place. Oh, is that right? You're not a, you don't like go embrace the snake. I've had snakes like. Embrace uh, the snake. Put on me by weird reptile dudes. Right. And you know, if, if I'm braced for it, I'm like, yeah, I guess there's a snake on me briefly. They're heavy. And, and I'm told it's one of the. One of the good ones. I'm, I'm a little bit of a snake racist. I want to make sure it's like a, you know, very articulate snake. I've got a lot of snake friends. So anyway, the witch says, have you ever insulted a snake? Uh, his, he's got a good snake record. So she's puzzled. She thinks there's something in his past that maybe could have pissed off the, the Python God. And at that point, pythons just start pouring out of the walls. What? At, at no point in the story does he say he drinks some kind of funny tea or smokes a funny pipe. But at this part, um, pythons begin like swirling around the room. This is his hut or hers. This is her hut. Her hut. He's gone into the sacred forest. And now pythons. Yeah. Coming out of every hole. Which are the, um, yeah, pythons coming out of every hole. Like uh, number three. I love that video. <laughs> but, uh, and she's uh, she says, oh, this is a very auspicious sign. Which oh, I, she's into it. Which I would not say if pythons were coming out of every hole in my house. Well, that's why you're not a witch there's so many differences between me and a West African witch. And that's just one of them. Mm -hmm. 
I'm picturing some kind of like, you know, dazzling Eartha Kit type diva. Yeah, in yeah, the, right. In this hut, I'm picturing you in your in your Greenwood home with snakes pouring <laughs> walls, <laughs> and what you and 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 Mindy and your your lovely two kids. I think your kid, your son, would be pretty into it. I feel like if there was like no, I feel like if there, if there was one it? garter snake on the porch, like we would have to like list the house. Right. <laughs> I do remember we were, um, my dad rented a house in, when we were moving from, when they were moving from Singapore back to the States, he rented a house in Utah for the summer. And I went over there one time and it was, you know, he would just have the basement of some nice old lady, nice old Utah grandma. And the hill sloped down through this dry grass kind of to a creek bed. And I remember just kind of wandering down there one day and I decided to wander back another way. And everywhere I stepped in the grass, it moved. And you walked into a snake. It was just, it was the end of Raiders. It was a hundred percent. There's more snakes than grass. And me and my friend were like, how are we going to get back up? Cause literally everywhere we move snakes scatter. And, uh, we were just like, well, I don't think there's, I mean, there's, there could be rattlesnakes in Utah. It's not like normally you'd climb a palm tree in this situation, but I didn't have my loincloth. Yeah. Uh, so we just ended up thinking, cause we're dumb college students. Let's just run as fast as we can Smart. through the, give the snakes snake no opportunity. Ground. To, yeah, to in hindsight, we should just have banged on something and they, their, their sensitive tympanic membrane would have said, these guys are yo-yos. I'm out of here. But right. we just ran up the hill as fast as we can with like snakes moving from underfoot with every step. And uh, it worked out. So clearly I'm protected by the Python God as well of Utah. When you were growing up here in Washington state, did you not ever, because you used to see garter snakes here a lot. And I would, I would go get garter snakes and and bring them home. And one time, tragically, a garter snake got loose in our house Oh, and uh, my mom never found it. And did she have some of the other wives try to look for it? She still talks about it. As a was when she lists my crimes, it got out. It takes a long time to list all my crimes, but the garter snake in the house was one of them. She's convinced it's still living in the walls of that house with the with the rooster, presumably. I don't think either of them. The uh, garter snake and the rooster. Those are the, those are on either side of my coat of arms. They're happily married. Yeah. <laughs> um, queer icons. The 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 garter snake and the rooster. But you never you never had garter snake times yeah uh, in the yard especially my grandparents place in oregon you'd see um they were they were a lot of them they were just kind of little yeah little little green ones that were you know didn't read as snakes to my um to my early mammalian hindbrain i haven't seen one in years i don't know what happened to them i don't even see slugs anymore slugs are gone the mass extinction no the slugs is, you were you and my mom were talking about this not very long ago weren't you yeah where'd the slugs go where'd the slugs go they were they were replaced by snails and then where'd the snails go I, maybe I salted all the slugs. In, as part of your Salt the Earth campaign? <laughs> From when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, future listeners may not understand how important it was to smell good in our era. They probably all smell great. They're all jellyfish that smell like sandalwood. But um, mm-hmm. in our day... Well, they have a, probably a different sense of what smells good. Dragging themselves along a sea bottom probably smells great to them in our day a lot of people smell like they drag themselves across the sea bottom just because they are not uh paying attention to such things well yeah i mean there are a lot of opportunities in modern world to not smell your best because people don't take care of themselves anymore they're just sitting around in their sweatpants watching episodic television but also uh people i don't think have have access to 
fine quality deodorants. People will worry about what might be in the stuff they're smearing on themselves once it is, which is their right to do so. Some of that stuff has uh, aluminum in it, or it might have uh, like plastics that are not great for the environment. Yeah, you don't want to smell like Right Guard or Old Spice. You're a modern person. You're a a skateboarder and a and a dream catcher maker. But native cares. Na- this this entry in the omnibus is brought to you in part by Native, who makes aluminum free deodorants uh, and a ton of other stuff: body wash, toothpaste, toothpaste, sunscreen based on minerals instead of on presumably animals or vegetables. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The stuff smells great, and it's made with care the right way for people who want to put the right stuff on them when, when they're slathering. You don't want to slather the wrong stuff all over you. No, and I'm somebody that doesn't like scented stuff, and I've noticed that Native makes unscented stuff and also delicious flavors like coconut and pineapple, which makes you feel like you are on a tropical vacation. You're saying delicious, but uh, we're not recommending, to be clear, that you eat your deodorant or sunscreen. No, 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 but like it makes you delicious. I see. Like their uh, their body wash is comes to, in to a shark. coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, lavender and rose. I mean, this is making me want to kiss you. Right, not you, but who? But one. But it makes me want to kiss one. Stay fresh, stay clean with Native by going to nativedio.com/omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout, and you're going to get twenty percent off your first order. You can build your own personalized product bundles, mix and match three of your favorite scents, and keep them on rotation so you have something for every occasion. Mm, is it a citrus and herbal musk day? Mm. Maybe it is. That's nativedio.com/omnibus and use promo code omnibus at checkout. For 20% off your first order. So the priestess is impressed by yeah. this uh, this reptilian uh, outpouring and says, you know, oh, the, the, the snakes are pleased with you. You uh, need to start training to be a Bokonan, a, a, a priest of the snakes. And young Michelle thinks, uh, the last thing I want is to become a priest of the snakes. What, he's content being the youngest, the, the runt child of, a, of an unloved wife? Well, he would already be the runt child, and now he's got to, like... Be the priest of the snakes. So you and I would love to be the priest of the snakes, yeah. but he just, got, he just got almost killed by a snake. Oh, he's right. got some trauma to process. Uh, he doesn't say this, but um, there, it's kind of between the lines. He's like, now I'm, I'm in a family situation I don't like, and I'm getting pushed into a career I don't like. And that, uh, around that time, he wanders into a, one of the few uh, bookshops in Lome, Togo, run by some evangelical missionaries, and finds a book by one uh, Robert Garant called The Eskimos from Greenland to Alaska. At the time, you could say Eskimo. Um, and it's full of uh, kind of National Geographic-style pictures. Like, I don't mean naked people. He already has that. For him, right. National Geographic pictures are for anoraks. Yeah, you would, you would uh, not survive long in the um, Inuit culture if you were naked. That is correct. And, so, and he's fascinated by that, by the descriptions of cold. Like, he reads, like, low numbers, and he's, it's like a kid reading the Guinness Book of World Records. He's like, yeah. what? Like, it's below 30 centigrade there? Like, he, you know, he can't get his mind around it. Um, there are not only... Uh, the people all seem very friendly. There's lots of pictures of kind of smiling, chubby native uh, people going about their seal hunting and fishing business. Right. And he loves that. Um, the snow, of course, is all seems very new and strange to him. 
there are no snakes and not even trees. Right. So the two things that have led to his downfall, having to climb up palm trees and then getting attacked by snakes, he would be clear. Right. In Greenland, this treeless wonderland. And uh, anthropologically, he reads that uh, the the culture up there, what, what the book calls Eskimo culture, really values children. Like the child is the boss of the family, and the younger, the better. Huh. And so to Young, you can see how to Michelle, this seems like it's the answer to all his problems. Yeah, 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 right. My problem is that I'm an African. I need to be an African in Greenland. Yes. He says to himself. Uh, While still a boy. He's how old at this point? Uh, he's a teen. Yeah. This is now like uh, like 1958, I think. Wow. Um, Little did the residents of Greenland know what was about to transpire. So he f- tries to figure out how do I run away to Greenland? It's daunting. I mean, it would be daunting for you and I to run away to Greenland. He's living in... I could uh, buy a ticket to Greenland. He's living in West Africa. Yeah, that would be harder. In 1958. Yes, as a teen. As yeah. a teen, your options to get to Greenland... How do you get from Teenland to Greenland? It's tricky. Mm-hmm. And presumably... If, Maybe this book should be called From Teenland to Greenland. If only, if only weeks before he was... He had little enough money that he valued dead palm fronds. Coconut husks, yeah. Um, that, yeah, it would be tough to scrape together the resources to get on a tramp steamer. And which tramp steamers are going from Togo to, to Greenland? <laughs> there are no direct flights or cruises, right. it turns out. Uh, and really, he has no options. He uh, he realizes that he has an aunt who has married a Ghanaian... Ghanaian? Is that the right adjective? Ghanaian? Ghanaian? Somebody will tell us how to say this demonym. They're already emailing us right now. Like, before I finish this sentence, send. Ghanaian. His aunt has married a Ghanaian fisherman, and ants in this culture, unlike children, are are prized. They are the... um, Aunties. Yeah, the aunties are kind of the spiritual uh, lifeblood of the family. Even a father will defer to what what the aunt says. My sister certainly wishes that that were true here. Yeah, yeah, we have a very... uh, Ant disregarding culture. Not increasingly not in this home. My sister has she called the of, shots. Well, she's sort of arrived here and set up camp, and now she's up there right now telling us what we're going to eat and drink. What's she doing? Well, I have no idea. We're down here in the bunker. We're safe. Thank goodness. We're safe from all her. That's from all her schemes and yoga classes. One of the reasons I built this bunker. Um. So the uh, his so this aunt is now living in Cote d'Ivoire, and so he can if I if he says hey I'm going to go stay with Auntie, there's little his dad or or the eight wives can say about this. Right. Well, and they're probably like the good riddance, Snake King. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they probably want him to be a snake priest. That would probably be a lot of prestige. Sure, of course. I, I bet if one of my kids told me they wanted to be a snake priest, <laughs> yeah, think about it. I would be telling the neighbors be like, immediately. This is so much better than being an Uber driver. <laughs> So he winds up in Cote d'Ivoire. This whole part of the book takes, it takes him six years to get out of West Africa. Okay. Uh, much less to Greenland's icy shores. Right. Um, he's, he's using up his teen years. He heads to Cote d'Ivoire, gets a job, and then he finds his aunt is starting to try to marry him off because that's what the aunties are for. And oh. he's like, oh, I got to get out of here before she finds me a bride. Unfortunately, Cote d'Ivoire decides it's going to repatriate all its migrant workers. And so he's put on a DC-10 back to Togo and has to start over. This time he goes to Senegal and gets a good job typing in the embassy. He is um, he appears to have a gift for languages in this whole book. Yeah, he learned to read and write, uh, which is kind of impressive given his his station. I assume his middle class his is is his family is what passes for you know if his dad has has eight um, 
oh sure wives and wife equivalents they must be doing pretty well yeah you're right you're right um so wife equivalents well i don't i don't what's the right word they're not concubines left other wife but they're like wife asterisks there there's a difference there's like oh there's two stages of of wifeness there it's like a like like a chrysalis (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) it's a pupa wife uh no there's like uh you can the different two different statuses of wife. Different It's on your license plate. Yeah, but I think maybe just you know, his his native language is Mina, which is only spoken by like it's it's one of like the forty or whatever languages spoken in this tiny sliver of Togo. We talked about that in the Twins of West Africa, and I think it, maybe it. Do you think it lends people like a linguistic, um, a good ear or a good ability with languages if from a very young age you're having to assimilate just multiple languages from French to a bunch of Indigenous language. I mean, they do talk about uh, people with who who come from tonal language cultures having his uh, is tonal having uh, more incidences of perfect pitch. Mm. So, growing up with a language that that has pitch as an element of communication, you you know you you're uh, more quickly able to attain perfect pitch. So, I I imagine that's probably true. Through the whole book, he appears to have just an almost superhuman facility. With language, he shows up in Germany at one point, and uh, suddenly he's just speaking German on the train. And they're like, uh, "How do you know German?" He's like, "Well, I don't, but it was you know Togo used to be a German colony, so." And like by the next page, he's just Germans are taking him home. Like he, right? He, he appears to just be able to pick up any language. God, wouldn't that be an incredible skill? It really one would. of the great gifts. And he kind of he presents himself in the book. The book's very the writing is very fluid and easy to read, and he presents himself as just kind of a wonderstruck every man yeah but it's clear that he has a great just from the way people treat him it's clear that he has a great deal of personal charm and charisma and ability um he uh so in senegal within within a week he's a bilingual typist at the at the Ghanaian embassy because he speaks french and english and i guess a bunch of other languages um and suddenly he's super comfortable. They're like, oh, and, uh, you know, one of our diplomats now has an extra apartment so you can stay there. Suddenly he has this dream set up in Dakar, Senegal. And he thinks, you know what? If I stayed here for a couple of years, I'd have enough money to see Greenland in style. Wow. But he thinks, like you, he thinks that would not be authentic. I would, no, get, I would get too comfortable. You don't want to see it in style. I want to sleep under a fountain. I mean, for me, sitting here, living in Dakar in an embassy apartment... Sounds like the awesomest. I, you know, what am I doing now? Like, what, what when my daughter, the day she graduates from high school, I'm moving to Dakar to become an embassy clerk. Yeah, that just sounds so awesome. Start studying up for the foreign service exam now. I wish I were, I wish I were a 22 year old embassy clerk in Dakar instead of a decrepit, an old, uh, broken Graham Green character. Yeah, like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So he decides, I got to leave now before I get too cozy. Yeah. So he just heads, you know, he knows Greenland is north, so he just heads into the Sahara. I love this guy. He just, uh, this is not, not too different from some of your adventures. He winds up in Mauritania. Yes. Uh, trying to go to the furthest outpost he can get. And when he gets there to port whatever, he finds that trucks don't go that way anymore. Uh, oh, wow. We've had the same. We've <laughs> had the, the. He went the opposite direction. Same experience except on the other side of the desert. He's on the southern edge. And so at that point, he kind of has to go back to Senegal and start saving money again. Oh. Oh, that was just like just like me and, and Marrakesh. And it is not until 1963, fully six years later, that he winds up in what his family would have called Yovode, France, land of the white people. How did he get there? Uh, yeah, just saved steamer. his pennies. Yeah, 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 yeah. S- saved up and and hopped on a boat. Wow, to France. 
And at that point, there's a couple more years in the book of him hopscotching across Europe. He, uh, you know, everywhere he goes, he immediately has some clerical job or just washing dishes at a hotel and getting all his meals for free. And also, you know, as part of his, I don't think in Europe, this would have been the novelty of meeting a, a black African man in 1960, but there, because, you know, there would have been a whole influx. He mentions yeah. there was an influx from, from post-colonial. From, yeah. That's, that's Africa, what you get when right. you say you own Africa. They, they come and visit and you can't, <laughs> you know, your, your, your fascists complain, but what are they going to say? Um, so he is. Uh, he doesn't seem like he would be much of a novelty in these large European cities where he winds up. He's in Marseille, and then he's in Paris. Then he certainly he's, not in Marseille. He's in Ger- no. Then he's in Germany. Then he makes it up to Copenhagen, and in all these places, he uh, immediately, like on the train, finds some nice old man who wants him to stay. He has the gift of charisma. Uh, a, a widow with, uh, he, you know, he tells a widow with two daughters on the train that he's headed for Greenland. This is the, when he's learning to speak German. And they're like, Greenland, my my young friend, you'll be so cold, you know. Yeah. You must come stay with us. And so it, immediately he gets off the train in, in Dusseldorf or whatever and has an apartment. And she's knitting him sweaters and. Right. Yeah. And worrying about him. Uh, the, the, um, the older French man he ends up staying up with ends up, uh, he starts calling him Papa and they develop a you know, a familiar relationship. And this guy ends up sending him a, a monthly check throughout the rest of the book. And at no point does he think there's anything untoward about this sure. old guy that would love to have, a, you know, a circuit son. A, a, yeah. Or, or, or what are you suggesting? Well, I mean, you seem like you're implying something. It seems like if you're in a French train station and yeah, an old, an, right. an old French man approaches you, a young, tall black man and says, I would like you to come stay with me. This has all happened to me except for the bl- being black part. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and the check I get from him is it's just a pittance. It doesn't even. No. That, has he kept it up over the years? Though? Oh, That's wait, nice. wait, I saw. There's never any hint that anything odd is happening. He just seems to be uh, a magnet for like interested people who, when he explains his quest, they want to. They want to sponsor it. And I guess I can see that. This is the wonderful thing about a quest. You know, the the defining quality that a quest gives all travel. Because there are so many people that are just traveling for the sake of traveling. And you're wandering around and so, oh. I'm going to see these three places and then go home. Yeah. Or like, oh, I don't know where I'm going to go. And somebody takes you home. But but there's no there's no focus. And, and, and there is an element of kind of. You could you can feel like a scam or a scammer over time because it's like why am I why am I here I'm just here and when do I leave I don't know he didn't say Never. he was Sidney Poitier's son or anything to this guy <laughs> but but the wonderful thing about and this was true you know I, it's been a while since I mentioned my walk across Europe but uh, wait wait did you walk across Europe yeah funny funny you should mention it um, but people assumed that I was on a religious pilgrimage and when they thought I was headed to Jerusalem. Which was the, which was the way they tried to contextualize. I, you know, I was coming from sure. the north and headed to the south. Where could I be going? But Jerusalem, and when they thought that it was a, I got a completely different reception. And then I would always take pains to say I'm not really going to Jerusalem. And then you could see that, you know, they would have to reevaluate how much soup they actually wanted to provide. But me. if you had a similar story, if you were like, I'm going to Istanbul because. When I was young, yeah. I heard a tale of the Blue Mosque, or, or you know, yeah. I always wanted to see the Bosporus ever since I read about, I first read Homer, or, you know. Yeah, people would, people would totally buy into that. And the problem was, my story was, yeah, my, my indie rock band 
broke up and I didn't really know at this point, invent a story what to do next. Were you never tempted to invent a, like uh, Elizabeth Gilbert? Well, no, this is, she a, wants to eat. This was then my she wants problem. To pray. <laughs> then she is prepared for love. I definitely needed to eat. I tried to pray completely ill-equipped to love. No, I, part of the problem of having an authentic experience is that you can't couch it in a lie or even, you know, if you're even a, uh, even like a myth, you know, I had to, I had to confess to every person oh, you could have my been, faithlessness. You could have invented a myth and it would have grown into the truth. I know. That's what I should have done. I'm, st- I'm trying to do that now, Ken. I'm trying to invent, I'm What's, trying to have the myth grow into the truth. But without travel. <laughs> What's your COVID era myth? I'm traveling in my imaginarium. Nice. In your VR headset. <laughs> so uh, he's, uh, so he's thriving in Europe. He winds up in Copenhagen and actually begins to take more serious anthropological interest in his quest. He's, uh, he spends a lot of, you know, all his free time from washing dishes at the hotel. He's at the National Library or the National Museum looking at, um, you know, studying the indigenous cultures, looking at Eskimo art. And he's got to be an incredibly well-educated person by this point in time. Yeah. Like self-educated. Autodidact. And, but yeah. yeah, like he is, I mean, think how much you would learn about yourself spending six years working in the embassies of West Africa and then three years taking trains across Europe. Um, I can imagine. He might be one of the best traveled Togo Lees in the world it's at incre- this time. It's incredible, right? Um, by the time uh, he takes his eight day voyage across whatever strait it is from Denmark to Greenland. It turns out even though he's in Denmark and it's Greenland's part of Denmark, he needs a special, um, you know, visa or certificate or whatever. And they're very reluctant to give it like uh, basically on the basis of young man, you'll be quite cold. Uh-huh. And, and so he has to, uh-huh. he has to pull some strings. I feel like there have been so many people over the centuries who have thought Greenland, like that's the, that's the future. Like Greenland, it, first of all, it's got green in the name, so it's got to be lovely. It's huge. And it's, uh, it seems like a, a world of untapped resources. Do you remember, wasn't President Trump trying to trade for it? Oh, yeah, right. He wanted to trade Canada for it, but then he realized that we he, didn't own Canada. We didn't Canada. have Canada. Yeah. So it's a huge, yeah, huge it was, stumbling block it was to, his, a black eye. to his plan. I think, you, I think most people don't realize that most of Greenland is under a glacier, right? He arrives at the, you know, yeah, his, his journey is all along the coast, which is the only inhabited part of it. It's got a series of deep and picturesque fjords like Norway running up and down both coasts, although most of the most of the um, most of his journeys are along the west coast of Greenland, and it's just dotted with little fishing towns because yeah, everything else is just impenetrable, trackless ice waste <laughs> all year. <laughs> You're an impenetrable trackless ice waste. Yeah, I, I really am. Uh, he, but when he arrives at one of these coastal towns, it's quite green with lichen. He, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's heard the. The story of Eric the Red naming it Greenland to try to, as kind of a real estate scam, yeah. goes back to 13th century sagas. So there may be something to it. It's, that's actually true. The whole, we named it Iceland to keep people away and named it Greenland to sucker people in. The Greenland part of it does actually date back to um, not too long after Eric's lifetime. So, you know, it, it was something that was said about his myth, you know, prior to modernity. Huh. Um, but when he gets there, it is quite green. It's green with lichen. He arrives at the town of um, Kakortok, which is uh, Julianahab. Um, in its Danish. In its Danish name. All these places have, a, have an Eskimo name and a Danish name. And as you will imagine, as he gets off the 
boat. It is the biggest thing that's ever happened in Greenland. Right. They're like, um, who is this guy? He is six foot tall, which, you know, you know, he's not like um, some seven foot Dinka tribesman, but uh, the average height in Greenland, apparently, the, the indigenous people are, you know, hover around five three. Right. So he is a giant, and they call him. He spends the book being called uh, Mikalika the Giant, basically. Uh, he, uh, you know, so all eyes are on him as he walks down the gangplank. Um, a group of children follow him around like the Pied Piper. Everywhere he goes, word has already reached there. He'll show up at a different town, and it'll be like, "Oh yeah, my my niece's friend uh, saw you two months ago and said you might be coming." Um, he's an authentic celebrity. Uh, over the radio, within a few days, um, the the radio in in the capital Nook or, or Gotthab is uh, is announcing that uh, Greenland's first black visitor has arrived. And and does he speak Danish? At yes, this point, from, and, his, from his year in Copenhagen, he's got pretty good Danish. And do they speak Danish in Greenland? Um, so gr- the story of Greenland is not unlike Togo, and this is not really foregrounded in the book, but it, it, it surfaces a bit. You know, it's a it's an indigenous people who have been settled by a European power, not always with the fantastic results you'd expect. <laughs> right, the, the the grace that Europeans have shown <laughs> famously globally. All, all over the world. Yeah, um, and so you know a lot of these. Towns are not doing well. Uh, it's a it's a resource extraction economy. It's a hunting culture that where the hunting is no longer going great. So the future is shrimp and cod fishing, but the people don't love it. They yeah. they don't culturally they don't like the switchover. They don't like the fish. He he's he's enjoying all the mackerel while they're eating boiled reindeer meat because you know in their culture. The reindeer meat, boiled reindeer is prestigious and, you know, provides the needed fat calories to get through the winter. You know, he's enjoying this sushi-grade mackerel, and they're just, like, rolling their eyes at this weirdo eating bait. Right, right. Um, so there's some prestige to meat that fish doesn't have. There's a, a lot of drinking. Um, a fair amount of the people he meet um, don't appear to do much, and they say they're seal hunters, but, you know, they go out once a month, and really, luckily, there's a Danish government allowance that keeps them going. So yeah, it's a culture that's not in great shape and probably reminds him a lot of what France did to Togo back home. Right. Um, but why was I saying this? What was your question? Oh, uh, uh, do they speak Danish? Oh, so yes. Yeah, so there's a mix of, there's, you know, some, he stays with, mostly he stays with indigenous people because he enjoys the smaller villages that are off the beaten path. I think he never actually winds up in the capital. Um, some of them have been, westernized danishized to some extent and really the only time in the book uh a, a, a town refuses to let him in it's because you know the the influential first citizen um is a kind of danishized inuit man who says no because there his would have been a hospitality culture everywhere he goes people are fighting to let him stay whether they have a bed or not whether they have extra seal blubber or not um but in this one village people won't say and it's because the guy has been has been Europeanized and is like, no, 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 that's not what we do. Oh, interesting. And once he says no, all the locals have to say no from the from Canute, the actual Danish school teacher, all the way down to the to the um he ends up staying in a at a kind of a poor alcoholic shanty on the outskirts of town, because that's the only guy who is low status enough to buck the to buck the de facto mayor. Right. Yeah, so, this was an era when uh, you know the the 
most of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, the European mentality about Inuit culture was let's eradicate it. Right. And, um, and put everybody in Western schools and. That's the one place he mentions, because it reminds him of Togo. You know, he says, you know, I got to say, they're not teaching the, the indigenous languages in the schools, which I think is crazy. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the one time that shows through that, that it reminds him of, of maybe what the French have done to his part of the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, I should say that when the radio announces that Greenland has its first black visitor ever, that appears to not be true. Um, if nothing else, one of the most famous African-American men of his time went to Greenland. Go on. I'm speaking, of course, of Satchmo himself, Louis Armstrong. No, uh, Matthew Henson, the um, who was with uh, who was with the, the the Robert Perry expedition. Is that right? That uh, claimed to have uh, been the first to visit the North Pole. Although today, yeah, it's Robert Perry's expedition. Uh, one of his men was uh, Matthew Henson. Uh, uh, a Maryland-born black man, um, born to post-Civil War sharecroppers in 1866. And in many accounts, he's the one who first sets foot on what the expedition decides is the North Pole. And many of those expeditions were to Greenland or left from Greenland. Right. But that was, um, that would have been decades before. Prior. Uh, oh, right, decades. 50, so 50, 50 years, years. Yeah, yeah, about 50 years prior. Um, and so there doesn't appear to be any memory of uh, a black person there. So it has all the. And he was on the he was on the boat. He he was on Greenland, but he didn't do a grand tour. Like I think there was here. some exploration, some dog sled exploration of northern Greenland on some of Peary's Arctic trips, um, which Henson would have been along for the ride on. Um, but fifty years later, this is a huge novelty. The people call him Kash Luna, which if you look it up, he's confused because if you look at him in a dictionary, that's the Eskimo word for white man. <laughs> but it turns out they don't see color. You know, to them, there's just, are you Inuit or are you, are you, are you Inuit or are you out of it? Basically. Right. right. And that's a pun. That's good. And, uh, not good, but yes. And so they call him Kash Luna, their word for white guy, which he doesn't mind. It just, it now means foreigner. And in fact, one person says, Oh, Hey, I saw your countryman on the news. You, you're going to want, you're going to be interested in this. And he's like, what, what black guy have they seen? And the guy rummages through some papers and brings out a picture of, of Elizabeth Gen- Taylor, General de Gaulle. <laughs> Here it is. Your cousin, Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> and I think there's only at one point in the book where some, you know, some drunk, some angry drunk calls him the N word, you know, hmm. like you, you low down so-and-so. Right. And he's very philosophical in kind of the, the mold of your dignified fifties um, black gentleman who, who, you know, is kind of forced by society into being a, a you know, a, a, a good representative of his people. Sure, you an know. emissary. Yeah. Honestly, a, a phenomenon which affected Barack Obama as recently as 2009 to 2016, you know, yeah. like dial it down and make sure you're not too. And so in the book, he's very philosophical. Clearly, in my experience, every time I've had a slur like that, it was just somebody dealing with their own inner problems and demons and had nothing to do with me, you right. know, so he... He's not wrong, and he's... No, he's exactly right. ...living I, in a living in a uh, pretty good state of, of the mind. I'm sure in, in, in the moment, it is not as easy to shrug off as, as you know, you, you ha- perhaps you have to make it seem in these accounts for a white audience. When a drunk person is screaming something at you, you can always take it with a grain of salt. Um... So he winds up staying in a series of uh, houses with all the locals who are fighting over him, and they offer him all their delicacies, whale skin and seal blubber, 
a lot of the book is about food. Yeah. Um, he hates it all at, at, at sure. first. By the end of the book, he's like, I mean, he hates when the reindeer is boiled, when it's a caribou steak, when it's grilled. He's like, delicious. Boiled reindeer is not delicious. I've had reindeer once in uh, grilled form and it was pretty good, but yeah. I can't imagine any meat benefits by boiling, especially game. My mom was just talking about the fact that her mother's family preferred their meat boiled and she would go visit them. Her mother died at a young age, or, you know, right after she was, my mom was born and she would go visit her mother's family and they were like, oh, boiled tonight. We have boiled chicken and boiled beef, you know, every kind of meat you could possibly want all boiled with the yellowy, you know, mm. and, and she, um, she still cannot eat boiled meat to this day. And I don't like it. I'm assuming you don't like it. I don't know what, why would you, if you could cook it any other way? I guess corned beef is boiled. Is that true? Does that count? Oh yeah. Uh, I do like corned beef. It's already been it's already been marinated for your pleasure. But you know when you when 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 you're at Katz's Deli and they pull that big slab of corned beef off and they chop off that that like super gross yellow layer of fat. That's, that's what everything else is. You're like, oh, thank God you're throwing that in the garbage. I mean, there's so much fat eating in this book because that's what you it's do a long, there. cold winter. Um, and the, the stuff about, there's lots of little colorful details about what it's like in these Greenlandic um, seaside villages. Uh, you know, all the day drinking that goes on, but also, you know, people sharing local delicacies. Like even when they have a cup of coffee, they'll often put in the local way to serve it is with Aquavit and some kind of seal fat. Yeah, liquor and fat make stir make it up your coffee like that. <laughs> that's what, that's what they say. <laughs> and so by the time you get to the bottom, it's like kind of a a, a, a fatty sludge, uh, which everyone yeah. finishes off with. This, you know, he'll eat some porpoise, and then the kids will be, you know, fighting over the you know which which por- which porpoise bones <laughs> they can turn into a kind of toy. Um, he goes to uh he he's shocked at how you know even though the sure enough the very first place he stays a kid in the in the morning he wakes up on the couch and a kid is fussing cuz they only have coffee and not tea and the mom is like okay and he's like oh this kid's going to get it and the mom's like okay I'll go down to the store and get some tea so he really sees that the oh the kids run the show yeah the 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 the, the baby first culture is is what he wanted but you know there's a trade off he goes to an old folks home and he finds that nobody's family visits them and they're Fairly, fairly neglected. It's it's not quite let them wander out on the ice, but these are cultures where there is some, uh, you know, there's actually some honor and theological purpose in suicide. It's, you know, suicides go to heaven in a lot of Inuit cultures. Oh, interesting. So, um, you know, there really is a, a culture of, um, well, I'll be, I'll be fine. I don't want to be a burden on you anymore. Well, yeah, subsistence, like true subsistence culture at, at the point at which you're not bringing in the bacon. And he comes from a, he comes from a, uh, ancestor an elderly or, and ancestor venerating right, culture right. exactly where the elders are, are super important so he's got so that's it there's cases like that where the tension between west africa and greenland without a, a moderating um you know american or western european reader is very interesting well that's the problem he took so long to get to greenland that he's now on the he, other side he's assimilated and he's like wait a minute no 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 it's the old people that you should treasure it just means he can speak to a lot of it uh, there's funny details like um he goes to a movie and the movie's been subtitled in Danish. They don't dub there because in Scandinavia, and I think this is true to this day, the audience would find it funny, the idea that um, that Tom Cruise is speaking Danish. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. like this This is comical, clearly. Yeah, it's these ridiculous. A, these actors don't speak Danish. This is taking place in, in South America. 
Um, so they dub all their movies, but the problem is there's a big chunk they of the audience. They don't dub all their movies. They subtitle Sorry, exactly. Them. They subtitle all their movies. They don't dub a thing. And the problem is there's a big chunk of the audience in Greenland that doesn't speak Danish. So what they do is they'll run 10 minutes of the movie and then the projector will stop. And a guy will come up and explain what's been going on in the Danish subtitles in the uh, local Inuit language. And then they'll run another 10 minutes of the movie and then he'll come back up and fill everybody in. Wow. Um, so it sounds like a terrible way to watch a movie. Although if that were how we watched movies here, I would love to have that job. Yeah. Okay, everybody. All right. Here's me, what happened. Let me explain. Okay, you know the blonde lady. I like how you assume you'd be really good at this. I think I would. You I think I'd be great would. at it. Let me just walk you through the movie. Um, even though everything, you know, he sees a lot of the trappings of the books that he loved as a kid and the weird customs, he finds that they they will smoke cigars by, they'll conserve a cigar by taking a long puff, then turning it around and putting the lit end in their mouth and putting it out in their mouth. And then um, kind of chewing on the ash and some of the unburned tobacco. Well, that, and then, so, that'll preserve a cigar. Then they enjoy the ash, and then they turn it around and relight it and take another puff, or put it away for another day. Yeah. You you, you use every part of the cigar, yeah. including the ash. Um, he's a little disillusioned by the... It, it's kind of funny. There's There appears to be very uh, free attitude toward sexuality mm-hmm. in Greenland of the of the early 60s. And he's a little bit coy about it. You know, he'll, you know, soon these girls were visiting my room too. And they were saying, where's the black one? Where's the black one? You know, he's a, he's a real object for, for sexual curiosity, as uh-huh. you might imagine. But often he'll find that, um, you know, he's, he, he thinks he's made a, you know, he's, he kind of falls for some local girl at a local dance only to find that um, she's actually been dating Carl for a year. And, uh, you know, Carl kind of pats seductively on the bed next to them. Come uh, come on, uh, Michelle, you know, and... Uh, oh, it's really, it's much more complicated than he thought. Yeah, and he kind of sulks back to his room, you know. Not ready to, not not quite ready to, to not, go that not far. Not ready for his first Greenlandic threesome. Um, so th- there are some kind of funny, he, at one point he, uh, at one point he is treated for VD in a clinic. He kind of mentions offhand that he thinks it's a, a VD eruption. So he's, he's a very popular... Uh-huh. guy uh-huh. um but there are there are many places where uh, you know and he, of course everyone's curious about africa as well you know he has to explain his own story which includes explaining what a tree is to people who have never seen a tree so he really kind of learns the how baseline the the cultural differences and assumptions are and and, and really cool that his experience as an african he ends up explaining the the larger world in the way that you, you know your typical european yeah. explorer would recount like yeah, I, I can, I, i'm I, a representative of, of the world of to the world. you benighted people yeah and, and in this case he's he's he, a he's a kosh luna he just happens to be one from africa that's wonderful um and there are places in the book where he's able to see some local customs and compare them to to west african customs in a way that a a, a british or american anthropologist would never be able to um, like you know, this this kind of this part of the animal is taboo, just like this part of the leopard, for example. Uh-huh. Or at one point, um, a, a, a young boy catches his first seal, and the the house, as is the local tradition, throws a huge party for the whole neighborhood. Everybody comes. Everybody compliments the boy about how delicious the seal is, but he's not allowed to eat any. He has to sadly sit and watch everyone um, eat the food he brought home. Why? I think it's just symbolizes you know that he's helping to support the village now and, and it's it's all about that and not about you know he doesn't do it for 
the catch. Um, and that reminds him of a similar custom back home in uh, Togo, whereby when a boy earns his first franc at whatever his odd job is, he has to bring it to his father. He can't spend it. His father has to, you know, prize the the first franc. Um, kind of an equivalent tradition. There's another one where, you know, the he goes on out on the ocean and a fishing for uh, he goes on a seal hunt and a on a fishing boat where they're catching a a kind of angry carnivorous fish he calls the sea wolf and the book is was full it a of, u-boat <laughs> yes he's catching nazis the book is full of these long anthropological descriptions of how you how you butcher a seal or how you um put a yellow balloon on the fishing line so that you can go back to your net later or you know all these kind of interesting procedural things um, and in this case, you know, he compares the practice of a seal hunt to the lion hunts back home. It's, it's really good anthropology. It seems like he, he'll often go running for a tape recorder or a camera, and, you know, if somebody's singing a folk song to, or to write down a local legend, he's a little disappointed by how most of the folk songs appear to be like 20th, like all the dances he sees are just kind of 20th century leftovers from early Danish era. Right. You know, he, the, the, he, he clearly wants to delve into the ancestral past and his... The attempts to eradicate the Inuit culture were... Have been successful. Yeah. Yeah. He ends up heading north because he wants weirder and weirder stuff. You know, he wants he wants the real seal hunters and dog sleds he read about and not these kind of cushy coastal villages. Um, and he arrives in the north just in time for polar autumn, which apparently is the weirdest time. Um it's not that everything's dark, it's that the specter of darkness is coming, so everyone kind of has the dread of the six-month night. The days are crazy up there. Like, at one point, I think the sun rises for the first time on March 17th. There's a little glimmer. Everybody goes up on the cliff by the village to watch the sky kind of turn slightly green, and they're like, yay, Mr. Sun is back. And two months later, by May 17th, it is day all the time. Yeah. Like, there is just no, like, spring is like... An hour, basically. That's phenomenal. There's there's dark all the time and light all the time, and that's all you get. Um, but in the polar autumn, everybody's been up all summer because there's not really blackout curtains. So everybody just kind of has three months of insomnia or whatever, six months of insomnia. Yes. And Super insane, I might you, add. You, you, you probably remember this from Alaska. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't have 24 hours of daylight, but you definitely... The, it's, it's, it's energizing. So much daylight, and, and you just you thrive, but it's... It's a it's a bipolar existence. So people literally, literally. Well, it's unipolar, but for the people, it's bipolar. Yeah. The um. So the people are living. You know, their bodies have been put to the test by this manic summer. They see nighttime looming. The ice is now too thick to go do any of their outside stuff, but it's not thick enough to actually walk or hunt or sled on. So everybody's kind of cooped up at home. So I guess autumn is the kind of the craziest time spring by the way stinks because everything everything thaws yeah. all because everybody was just dumping everything in the snow right which worked until till it all till it all starts to melt hot again yeah exactly um and uh you know he he uh he finds the the far north the farther north he goes there's a lot of Life's really, really tough up there. People are routinely eating their sled dogs um, when they're forced into it. There's a very lengthy description of how sled dogs um, have to poop en route because you don't stop as soon as one dog, you know, if one dog wants to poop, the rest of the team keeps going. So he'll try to squat and just keep getting dragged along. And finally, <laughs> he'll just get so, his hindquarters will get so uncomfortable, he just has to like 
let it go in the air right. and the person, right into the face of the dog. Yeah, in front, it, yeah exactly. And the other, the people in the sled have to know to duck because it might just be going everywhere. Ouch. Um, the return of the, you know, the winter means, you know, there's all these rules for the, the, he's really not ready for the cold. All the stuff people told him was correct. And it's really like you and I would not be, maybe you would be, but I would not be ready for that kind of cold either. Cause you literally have to make, you have to remind yourself there's certain things you cannot touch, you know, like even just touching this object, you'll, you know, you'll lose so much body temperature out of your hand that it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't think you can be ready for it. I don't even think if you live there all the time, you're ready for it. It's just so awful. The cold is just so cold. The static electricity is a problem. Um, like you, you can't even on your dog sled ride, you would freeze to death on any, you, you they end up running about a quarter of the time they're, they're going anywhere on a sleigh because that's the only way to keep warm and therefore alive. If you yeah. stayed in the sled, you would die. You, you know, you take a pen out of your pocket and the ink's frozen, take a hanky out of your pocket and it's just like a sheet of crumpled metal. So many stories about this. You spit in the air and it freezes before it hits the ground. Yikes. Um, cold. He, um, you know, but the, the winter is less crazy than the autumn. And the other thing about the return of the sun, he finds the tradition he, he runs into in addition to going up on the hill to see the glimmer of light is, uh, it turns out it's a big, uh, wife swapping party. Sure. Sure. The, the sexy times begin. You're saying sure, sure. Like Alaska does this too. Well, is there a big key party every, <laughs> the thing about the key party in Alaska is it's on a rotating schedule. It's kind of like Ramadan. They're really, he, you know, he, he winds up at some party not knowing what's going on and he kind of sees, you know, a, a, a third partner wander up to a couple and start chatting. And then soon the husband yeah. will, will leave, leaving those two alone. And he observes that he's a little bit, at this point, he's kind of, um, he doesn't love the free love of Greenland. At this point, he... A little too free. Yeah, he uh, he notices the, for one thing, he notices that the wives are less into it than the husbands are. Oh. Huh. <laughs> like it may not be, hmm. everybody may not be enjoying partner swapping day equally. Um, but he spends a full winter up there. Uh, and at the beginning of his second year, he feels like a Greenlander. He really stuck it out. Uh, he loves it. Even the stuff at first that was hard, like eating seal blubber or smoking the lit end of a cigar. <laughs> you know, he can he can do it all. And he feels very much at home, like this maybe was his his native soil somehow. When he's When he's talking about this in Europe, when he's talking about his great quest, People will tell him, well, you know, your your ancestors were nomadic and you have the urge to wander. And other people, African, th- that's what Europeans will say. Africans will say, you must be uh, a reincarnated spirit from somebody from the snows. You Interesting. Know, like, you must be remembering from a past life. And uh, it turns out to be true. He feels like a spiritual Greenlander. I assumed that the story would end with him being disillusioned and returning to some uh, some prior incarnation but he really did after all those years of dreaming about greenland actually make a life in greenland what's interesting is he doesn't stay uh, he um he loves it he feels at home but maybe just as in the book he doesn't say this it might be just part of the restless spirit that drove him there yeah and now he's gone as far north as he can and what else is there in the book he says that he feels he's got a communal responsibility he's now the only african person who has ever had these insights or seen these customs, you know? And so he's in a unique position to bring them back to his people. Like 
storytelling is a huge and prestigious part of West African life. And he has some great new stories. So he feels like he's got a cultural responsibility, a communal responsibility to his people to go home. Um, and so, you know, the, the old kind of surrogate dad guy he's staying with makes him a, a necklace out of a polar bear claw and tooth. And he's like, oh, wow, we do that with the leopard back home, you know, makes him a necklace. Um, and he, he sadly boards the boat back home, uh, you know, thinking all the while of his Greenlander friends and, you know, all the seal hunts that are going on without him that he's leaving behind. It's like kind of like the end of that. Um, do you know that movie Local Hero? Mm-hmm. Oh, just some callow American oil exec goes to Scotland and kind of falls in love with the quirky local place where he's supposed to build a refinery. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's it's a eighties, but the movie the movie ends with him back. The movie ends with him leaving, which is kind of a surprising twist. And he's it ends up with him back in his kind of Houston apartment, kind of looking sadly at the night sky, clearly wondering what's going on in this little more authentic village that he loved. Uh, and the book kind of ends the same way with him heading back to Europe and Africa, but but knowing that he'll always leave part of himself there. And Pomasi didn't publish the book until 81. And by then he had actually continued to travel quite a bit, including back to Greenland, back to Africa. I think he was uh, ended up based outside of Paris, just kind of doing the same kind of uh, translator work. He, you know, this was a well-respected and award-winning piece of anthropology when it was published. And so he, he was at least an amateur ethnologist, you know, right. in, invited to speak at conferences and contribute to journals. Um, I don't know if he ever got a degree in it. Yeah, I think he wound up working for an electronics company doing the same kind of off, good, good, solid office work slash translation that he was doing before and, you know, using the proceeds to visit his two spiritual homes, Africa and Greenland. You know, the, the, the movement to really try and recover Inuit culture you know, and stymied by these decades and decades and decades of trying to eradicate Inuit culture. You know, the Inuits now are are trying to kind of, in some ways, reconstruct their culture. And they're and they're as lost as an outsider would be because. Well, yeah, they've been colonized and and yeah. uh, and dramatically so. You know, there's a there's a resurgence in Inuit tattooing, um, where you know young uh, Alaskan natives are are starting to kind of try and reintroduce it as a, but you know, it's part of identity formation, right? It's not, it, in some ways, I think it's unclear exactly what the tattoos symbolized, but they're being reappropriated. And so, um, cause there's documentation of them, photographs, anthropological photographs, but like but a lot of the l- tradition, little ancestral memory. Yeah. And so I think, I think like, I imagine that this book and this, this cultural encounter is probably a, a document that is used within Inuit culture as kind of a like, well, let's let's try and even even in this in this kind of low moment, um, there might be clues to to like like rebuild a um, like a global knowledge. Yeah, and from the outsider's point of view of. Uh you know, of someone who's not even Europeanized, I guess. I guess you could say that he, you know, that uh, Pomasi might be seeing it without some of the European chauvinism and biases. That, yeah, he wasn't there to bring them Christianity. Right. In fact, 
he's specifically very annoyed by the Jehovah's Witnesses who are. But he's friendly, you know, he's friendly to all. And that concludes An African in Greenland, entry 022.JB3132, certificate number 36809 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. Um, our handles on the internet were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, Ken can be found throughout social media. I uh, now am confined to my own Patreon at patreon.com slash John Roderick. Uh, not confined. I, I, I bloom there. It's where I prefer to be. <laughs> Uh, you can Gmail us at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Um, you can find other Futurelings wherever Futurelings are sold. And you can support this show at Patreon and your contributions to the Omnibus Project at patreon.com help us uh, produce the show and help the show flourish. It's uh, There are some great privileges that come with Patreon membership. If you haven't looked into being a supporter, go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and check it out. Even at the lowest donation level, you get a, a secret free episode every month. And at the higher levels, you get perks like suggesting a show topic. Today's show, an African in Greenland, in fact, was suggested by uh, Thomas, a listener who uh, knew and loved the book, which I had never heard of. Yeah. And, I want to read it uh, And wanted to hear it. On, it's back in uh, African and Greenland, by the way, is back in print in the U S via, uh, NYRB, uh, New York review of books, which, um, New York review books has an amazing line of, you've probably seen them in bookstores. At first I thought you said NRBQ and I was yeah, like, NRBQ wow, has brought weird. back, uh, <laughs> <laughs> those guys are so diverse. Um, I, yeah, those are beautiful additions. It's like, it's, um, they tend toward kind of out of print underappreciated classics. And occasionally one of their newly in print books will kind of catch on like, um, John Williams's book stoner about a young uh, professor, I guess had kind of been forgotten. And then when the NYRB version of it came out, like Tom Hanks and all these people were extolling it. But you know, if you want to read the go between by LP Hartley or Henry Green's novels, um, the, the NYRB books are fantastic. Oh, Tom Nisley, my friend Tom Nisley from Jeopardy rendered me, uh, recommended me a really great spy novel. He runs the bookstore on uh, Greenwood yeah. Avenue. Yeah, he runs my neighborhood bookstore, and he's a Jeopardy veteran as well. And so we get confused for each other a lot. And I'm trying to remember the name of the... And why RB spy novel he recommended to me because it was fantastic. Um, well, uh, plug his bookstore and then people can contact him directly. <laughs> yeah, check out Finney Books. Ask Tom which NYRB books he likes. Uh, I was actually sitting at um, oh, I love Tove Jansen's The Summer Book. I love The Dud Avocado by Elaine Dundee. I was sitting at a um, like a studio commissary once with um, John Michael Higgins, the actor from those Christopher Guest movies. And he was saying that he was reading one of these, and I it was an Eastern European one. I jotted down the title, and he was like, oh, this is all I read now. I just read these. Um, and in fact, he said that, uh, who was it? It was um, some character actor, maybe 
Paul Giamatti uh-huh. is always trading notes with him on which one to read next, huh. and, they, and they just trade recommendations. Well, why don't we start a book club? Uh, John Michael Higgins, uh, Paul Giamatti, <laughs> you and, and me and all of the Omnibus listeners. We're all going to read the same weird Finnish books. Um, and I just, while we're mentioning, by the way, while we're mentioning uh, Thomas's support of the show that led us to do An African in Greenland, recently we did a show about Dog and H., yeah. The day that uh, Sweden changed its yeah. traffic direction. That's right. And what I neglected to mention in the outro, which I was going to if it didn't come up during the show, is that that was also oh, yes. a listener suggestion. Right. That was our friend Jochen. Jochen suggested it, and we did it. Jochen, uh, a German in uh, Scandahuvia. Yeah, that's, that's, he should write a book called A German in Scandahuvia, where he like has all his insights on, on weird sauna culture mm-hmm. that comes from being a... Uh, what? Uh, 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 how are the Germans different? From the Scandinavians? Yes. Oh, boy. Let's do an episode on it. I don't even know what I would say <laughs> how first. How the Germans are different from the Scandinavians. They're different. They're, they're very different in We're many gonna, ways. You're going to get a lot of letters from, from Swedes and Norwegians. I, I just don't know how I would, what I would say out of the bat. How they're different? Yeah. Off, like, off the blocks. What's the, what's the central, essential, spiritual difference between a German and a Swede? Saunas. I guess is it is it war and peace? Is it that simple? Oh, war and peace. No, you know the 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 Swedes came down and and burned Germany for oh, sure. a hundred years during the Thirty Years' War. But today they're all they're all uh, uh, peaceful modern Volvo drivers. The Swedes? Yeah. Oh, that's what they'd have you believe. Uh, it's a trick. Uh-huh. They're lying in wait. They're a tricky people. That's what it is. <laughs> Um, well, the, and the, I should just say the wonderful thing about Patreon.com is that the the word Patreon is derived from the word patron, and really it allows you to support the show as a as a petit medici. You you can be you your contribution of five dollars, a nominal amount, ends up being a, like like a Renaissance billionaire who who allows the Michelangelos of Ken and myself to paint the roof of our church. You create a cultural patrimony. That's right. And a legacy. Why do all these words all have patra in them? Seems, well, seems a little, seems a little male. You know how the Latins were. Yeah. Chauvinists. Mm. I guess. Well, yeah, the Swedes are tricky and the, <laughs> the Latins are chauvinists. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> To Omnibus, where we give one-word descriptions of all the world's cultures. What about the Dutch? Uh, Tall. (laughs) The Dutch are quite tall. And taciturn. Uh, And finally, you can send actual physical media and other things. Uh, We're uh, we're also maintaining a seed bank, so if you have any, like, apple seeds you want preserved. Send us your quinoa. You can send those to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I'm just looking at a couple um, postcards from a listener named Alex, who apparently is using, has recently discovered the show and is using it to... As, as, Go to uh, sleep at night. <laughs> hope not, because he's driving across the country. Oh, dear. He's, Good man. He's driving across America, and he's actually done very well, since he, apparently, since he sent us photographs from both the Badlands and Independence Hall, Philadelphia. Well, he's made it, he's made it halfway, or, or yeah, slightly more than halfway. Uh, I'm trying to see which way is he going. From the Badlands to Philadelphia, or vice versa. This one has a map, but I can't tell which. Oh, he's you know, he's headed east. He might have just gone to a thrift store in Kansas City and found postcards from all across the country. <laughs> no, he's got a little map. 
He says he enjoyed the London Bridge's Down entry because it followed on Prince Philip's funeral. So it was very... Uh, well, he's starting at the start then. He made it all the way through episode 29 on his road trip. Oh, wow. Can you imagine listening to 29 of these things? I've listened to 29 of them. I'd be ready for NRBQ <laughs> on the old stereo. He says after it, it, it took the first few episodes to get into the groove. Oh, really? Thanks. But he says my voice used to be stuffy. Did my voice used to be stuffy? Yours? I guess. You know, you've you you become much chattier. I don't know. If, I, I think he might mean stuffy in the sense of congested, oh. not like. Um, well, we were in Atlanta. We're not used to the not humidity. emotionally congested. Yeah, it must have been. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's still the the intro and the outro is still apparently my old weird stuffy voice. If you have a theory about my voice changing, please. Oh, we've send we're, it to we're us. still using the intro that we recorded in Atlanta back in in uh, aught seven or whenever that was. Uh, I believe so. Wow, that's awesome. I have no idea of the historical continuity within the show, because as you know, I've never listened to podcasts. Uh, you haven't listened to twenty nine of them, like Alex. Yeah. Anyway, if you have theories about my voice changing, you can email them to the Omnibus Project at gmail. You've been going through puberty for the first couple of years of the show. Finally, there. Still can't grow a mustache, though. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. I'm just glad I got to go through puberty. Mm. We hope and right pray. the end. Right. right. That's, that's when you <laughs> want it to happen. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Although I believe it is the alphabetically first omnibus. Oh, hey, Great. Weren't we just talking about this the other day? Yeah, we were. Uh, is Al- Albanian bunkers? I think maybe used to be first, and now African in Greenland is. Yeah. So this is. So if this is. But wait, f- it's un-African in Greenland. Yeah, but it's African in Greenland, comma, and. Oh, okay. So if you are listening to the omnibus in alphabetical order, welcome. Hey, thanks for joining the show. However, this could be the chronologically last episode. We have no idea if the world will end between uh, today and Thursday. So this may be our final word, but if providence allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus 